You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 12, Why We Like Sports. People love to watch sports. The Super Bowl, for example, is incredibly popular. About 111 million people, a third of everyone in the United States, watched the Super Bowl in 2017. Today we're going to talk about what else but the why. What exactly is it about our psychology that makes us love sports? So, Jim, first of all, is this even a problem? A lot of our listeners are probably thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's just fun to do. That's what a lot of people say. They say, well, it's fun. That's why I watch sports. Um, But the problem is um, that it's kind of useless. Like a lot of things people do has a real material gain for them. Like they're trying to get food or they're trying to get a mate or something like that or resources. Um, And watching sports doesn't really add to your life in any material way. So there's kind of a, a question of why it's got this pervasive popularity. So yeah, it's fun, but that's not really an explanation. We need to ask why it's fun. So let's first talk about why people play sports, and then we'll get to why they like to watch other people do it. Um, Now, people used to play sports more than they watched them, but now with modern telecommunications, that's shifted. Um, And the reason people play sports, I think, is best understood uh, using the concept of play in general. So birds and mammals, um, all birds and mammals play. And the current theory of play is that it is done to practice the behaviors that would be really useful for uh, adult behaviors. So, for example, uh, kittens practice stalking and pouncing and uh, antelopes practice running and jumping and that kind of thing. And, and dogs, you know how they like will get a chew toy and they'll squeak it and they'll, you know, and we think it's so cute. Um, you know, they're doing that because they think it's a little animal that's dying. Right? And the squeak is especially joyful because it sounds like the animal's squealing in pain. So the animals are practicing what they're good for. And if you look at kids and the way they play, you know, early on their games are very simple. Hide, you know, chasing, and you know, they do all these things that would be useful in an evolutionary environment. And of course they, their play changes as they get older. You know, they start doing more social kinds of games and negotiating rules. So you can see that play actually mirrors a lot of the kind of things that we would have needed to learn how to do in our ancestral environment. So when you look at sports that way, uh, they also seem to resemble things that would have been useful physical activities, running, throwing, aiming, and cooperating, right? So, um, you know, it's a sort of a safe way to practice just like play is. And it's uh, I don't think it's really a coincidence that we use the verb play when we talk about sports. That's really interesting. I I think I used to teach a a course on comparative psychology and uh, learning, and there's a really neat body of literature looking at play-based behavior, um, particularly, as I mentioned, among juveniles. And what's interesting is that if you um, prevent this play activity, if you, if you deprive animals, they don't develop normally. So it's pretty interesting. It speaks to the sort of evolutionary necessity for that play-based behavior. So that to me makes sense. And of course, like you're saying, it gives us physical fitness. Um, but why would we ever want to watch somebody else doing it? it? One way to look at it is that you're ac- in some ways you're practicing the sport when you watch it. So the motor parts of your brain have been found to be reacting similarly, whether you're doing a sport or just watching somebody do it. It's also found to be true for dance. And you might have found if you're watching sports or dance, you might find your body twitching in the chair 
sort of in sympathy with the person that you're watching. Um, and it's also true, you know, in supporting this, that watch that, or imagining doing sports makes you better at the sport. Um, so it might be that we have this instinct to watch people doing things, particularly doing things really well, uh, trains our motor system how to act better. So we can learn by observation. We've seen a real blossoming of this in the last 10 years or so with YouTube. People, especially ch kids, learning how to dance, learning how to do anything by watching other people do it on YouTube, right? You can, um, we can learn by observation. And one, uh, I think one reason we like sports so much, the reason we like to watch the best of the best more than watching mediocre players is the same reason we watch expertise or virtuosity in anything. That might be musicians or people doing amazing things. But, you know, like the best of the best, like major league football is way more popular than minor league. Why? I think that subconsciously we think we can learn from the best better than somebody else, right? So um, I don't know, like the way they're, this is all subconscious, right? But like the way they're running and tackling and throwing and communicating, you know, maybe we can pick up something valuable from that. Um, so my you know, oldest daughter is she's taking piano lessons, and one thing that we've taken to doing is she'll she'll ask me to go on YouTube and find uh, somebody else playing a, a specific song, and then we'll get into this. You know, ten minutes later, we've started watching all these child prodigies playing all these different classical pieces, and it's, it's just fascinating. So that's an yeah, esteem booster. <laughs> does it does it That's demoralize not her? you? <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> but yeah, so do we also like watching failures? Like all these, you know, you see these uh, YouTube videos of people. You know, you're like America's funniest home videos and all that, right? We get yeah. some kind of pleasure from that too. Well, pleasure. You know, there's a lot of. I think there's some disagreement on this, but why we like to watch people fail. Um, there's a theory out there of schadenfreude, which is that we in actually enjoy seeing other people get hurt, which is actually a very cruel theory that we act, you know, we, we, we watch a fail video because we, we delight in someone else's pain. I actually don't think that's what's happening. I think that mm. the reason that we watch that is because we want to learn from it. So it's the same as wanting to watch virtuosity. I think that our sub, the subconscious parts of our brain are trying to learn what went wrong. So when we, people are rubbernecking on a highway, when I lived in Atlanta, for example, it's a big car town, and every morning you listen to the traffic report and there'd be um, a car accident on the 85 or something, and there'd be a roadblock, or not a roadblock, but a traffic jam, but then there'd also be a traffic jam going the other way because of all the rubberneckers. And, you know, I also rubberneck at traffic accidents. I'm, you know, it's not immediately obvious why, but one thing I can tell you is, is it's not delight in seeing people get hurt. You know, mm. <laughs> I don't think that's what's going through people's heads, but there's something compelling about wanting to watch where things went wrong, right? And uh, I, I, I feel that that's, that's probably why we like to watch failures. But there must be something else about competition too, right? Yeah, everything we've been talking about applies to um, sports done by individuals like skiing and gymnastics, as well as team sports, and both involve competition to some extent. Uh, but having two people or two teams facing off feels kind of different than just trying to beat some score or time, right? So, and and team, you know, competition sports where two people are competing against each other uh, as part of the game are more popular sports, right? So like the long jump and the shot put, it's not, I mean, you're competing with somebody, but it's not like you're both involved in the same, even like you could be separated by weeks <laughs> comparison, right? But if you're playing one-on-one -on -one basketball, it's it's a totally different thing. And those are much more... 
uh, popular. I, we don't know for sure, but there's some evidence to suggest that we see competitive sports as a kind of a symbolic fight. Like boxing, an obvious example, yeah. right? Yeah, boxing's, you know, boxing's a great example. It's easiest to understand the fighting metaphor with fighting-like sports, and we have a lot of them. There's kendo and boxing and judo and wrestling. And, um, and, and it's interesting that going back to the animals, symbolic fights are also quite common in the animal kingdom. So uh, apes will often tear up vegetation, like two males will face off, and instead of just trying to beat the crap out of each other, they'll just they'll run around tearing up the vegetation, and whoever has the most obstreperous display uh, is the winner, and usually the other ape concedes and, and shows, uh, what's the word, the um, submission, right? And nobody has to get hurt, right? So it's a way that they can resolve conflict. Um, moose also do this. They lock. They they well. They don't lock horns. They try not to lock horns because they can die. But they'll 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 push the horns against each other and try to push each other. And they're really not trying to hurt each other, although that sometimes happens. And even all the way down to crabs. Crabs will wave their claws around, and that's how they do this symbolic fighting. So when they face off and compete for a mate or something, <clears throat> certain crabs will just wave their claw, and the one who looks like they would win the fight does win that kind of competition. So, uh, you know, we, even in the animal kingdom, like no, nobody gets hurt, but we have a, res a resolution. Well, when we were in Mexico recently, we saw a bunch of iguanas and they were just lying around. I was surprised how well, they must be used to humans, but if you got anywhere close to them, they would kind of raise their neck up and sort of give you this sort of like, hey, if you come near me, you know, and of course this is, I guess, a symbolic gesture of, of trying to show that they would be ready for a fight at, at some point. Anyway, we didn't take them up on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> segue. So, you know, I, I found sometimes, you know, I, I admit I don't watch a lot of sports, but, you know, times of Olympics or when, you know, our home team is in the playoffs, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about home team uh, feelings later on. But I, I do find that it, it there's a certain catharsis around watching sports, and it's it can almost feel... Uh, I hate to say relaxing, but I, I do find like it, it is it's enjoyable, right? So can yeah, you speak to a, that at all? Is there, there's a theory is there a of catharsis. And, and unfortunately, this, the evidence that there is in sports science doesn't really support it. So the idea of catharsis is that you do, do something uh, aggressive, or in this case, watch something aggressive, and it reduces the aggression. And I think that in psychology in general, catharsis doesn't hold up super well. I don't know if you know about other stuff, but I do know that in sports, like watching aggressive sports doesn't seem to make you feel less aggressive yourself. Um, and, in, and, I, and there does seem to be evidence that in uh, some places, um, watching violence or thinking about violence actually makes you feel more violent and not less. Um, I think that what's drawing people is much more related to drama than trying to reduce feelings of aggression uh, in themselves. Um, drama, what I mean by drama is some sort of attention between some sort of social agents, right? And we like drama no matter where it is. And so if you think of sports as a drama, um, then you can compare it to uh, liking movies, right? We prefer conflict in stories as well as in sports. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, I, I, yeah, I can appreciate that. You're seeing something that has attention and you don't know the outcome, which is kind of like a soap opera, right? You don't know. They're going to 
go with this guy or that guy or probably both. Um, so you've and you've talked about this in your book, right? The yeah. Riveted? Yeah. So I wrote a book called Riveted, and one of the things I argue in there is that entertaining uh, and compelling things, they're all uh, compelling for the same kinds of reasons, whether they're sports or poems or car wrecks. Um, and one of the important things I found is that drama, conflict between people of, of any kind is very important for what we find compelling. Uh, the uncertainty, the conflict between teams or persons, it strikes something deep. Uh, we really want to understand, when we see a competition, we want to know the outcome. We feel compelled to know the outcome. Um, and the reason is that in our evolutionary history, most of the drama we saw was actually important to our lifestyle. So if two people in your tribe, say, or in your group of 150 so people were in a conflict, it's actually important to know if they resolved it, uh, if they're enemies who won, because you need to know that that's like important to the social structure. And we didn't evolve with television and we didn't evolve with being exposed to dramas that were not actually relevant to our lives, but our minds are not, so our minds are, are not ready for it. So when we see drama on television or in sports, there's a deep part of our mind that thinks, that feels it's important. And, and you hear people talk about this, like they, they really seem to feel like it's important to watch certain sports games. And it's not dramatic if it's not a close game, like the 2014 men's gold medal win. Did you watch that? Mm -mm. Canada? You, I actually don't yeah. watch sports at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you need to not consider yourself the expert then just kidding <laughs> but it's not yeah you can appreciate right the drama is around like you know oh yeah, yeah, yeah down yeah. the last two minutes and absolutely you know. absolutely like people they really want their team to win and i think if you were to ask them they would love to see their team clobber their opponent but the um the studies show that they actually enjoy the game much more if it's close so winning by one point at the very end and making a comeback is way more satisfying than a monopoly style, like a board game monopoly style trouncing where you just they just get point after point after point and completely uh, clobber them. And you know the reason the reason is that uncertainty uncertainty in general makes us pay more attention. Our minds are very efficient at trying to get information, and if if it's a foregone conclusion, what's going to happen? Your mind uh, d determines it to be not worthy of its attention, and it starts searching for other things to pay attention to. It can safely ignore that, and it starts looking for something else to do. It makes me think that maybe we should be lecturing with uncertainty <laughs> to keep our students paying attention. Well, we certainly write I, papers like that. Like the, in psychology, the whole thing is written like the opposite of a news article. Okay, so for the, those of you listeners who haven't read an academic psychology paper, in a news article, you start with the most important thing, and then you give detail. But in a psychology paper, you don't even know what the paper's saying until like page 16, because they, they set up this like four pages of background until they tell you what the problem is. And then they won't even tell you what they found until after the entire experimental description. So, I mean, That's funny. It's, I've, I've never it, even thought of it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> well, you, you probably, I mean, reflect on how you read psych papers. Do you read them start to finish or do you jump to the discussion? Oh, well, now that I, now I read just the results. Hmm. I just look at the results. Exactly. Just, People don't I even read the them data. in order, which is funny. No. But but the way yeah. it's set up is like a drama. And like, ooh, what's, ooh, they're setting up a mystery. Here's the hypothesis. You won't find out whether it was supported for another 10 pages, but here it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
<laughs> now, now that our listeners are tuned into the the, the intricacies of science writing, um, so back to sports. Now, as I mentioned, as I alluded, I, 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 I'm, you know, the most tense game for me was the Canada uh, gold medal hockey game, and women's actually for that matter. We had the double gold. So we, we tend to really like the team, our teams that are, you know, the Canadian team or the Ottawa Senators, right? Like, what's what's up with that? Yeah, this is another one of those things that's so obvious that people don't even think to question it. Like, why do you prefer your home team to some other team, right? Um, and I think that this is based on some sort of a tribal identity. Uh, and I'll just mention that uh, you're talking about an Olympic event, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the person yeah. was from Canada, right? Right. So yeah. this is So this is something that I find kind of interesting is that, like, in the Olympics... The competitors are actually from the countries that they're representing, which, like, I don't know if people, like, ever, ever thought about it, but I remember, as not being a particular sports fan, being kind of shocked when I found out that, like, for example, the New York Giants weren't even from New York. It's like everyone's all, like, loves these players, and, like, they're representing you even though they're not from you, you know, and they get traded all over the place. But that actually speaks to something important about human psychology, that we can make groups and have a group identity based on the flimsiest, you know, ideas. <laughs> and and other animals can't do this at all. Um, and, and indeed, even physiologically, they found that when um, uh, men watch their home team win, they get like a testosterone surge. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, something interesting. Like other, other groups, like social groups, they don't... Um, they're like animal animal groups. They don't, they can't have group identity that is not kin based or reciprocity based, right? But humans can have kinship based on, like I said, whatever. Like I remember getting on a plane and talking to the person next to me, and he also liked rap music, and I felt a kinship to this person, even you know I'd never met before from a different part of the country, uh, just based on that, right? Chimps can't do that. I think that's wild. I, and I think it speaks to the fact that, like you said, it's probably deep evolution for us to form these groups. So that begs the question, Jim, given that you are born in the U.S., but you are now happy anniversary, one year Canadian, correct? Yes. It's been a year, Canadian citizen. So at the Olympics, who would you be rooting for? Uh, if you were to watch oh, the Oh, in Olympics. an America-Canada face-off? Yeah, yeah. I'd probably go for the underdog Canada. Oh, you know. <laughs> Well, except in hockey, I suppose. But we got a seven. You have a Canada has a seventh of the population. Like just uh, yeah, looking at the bell the, curves, like a po population is going to trounce a lot, right? And we don't get nearly the same funding. But anyway, that's yeah, a diversion. So, but so, so gone on to this, like you know, people people have this very strong association with their what you might call their home team or the one they really like. And I've heard people say that they feel they know it's irrational, but they feel like the team's going to lose or be more likely to lose if they don't watch it. So. You know, they have this the feeling of a sense of control over what they're watching. That's funny because I actually sometimes feel the opposite. I feel like I need to leave the room. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you're a bad luck charm. Like, I just can't. I can't. But, you know, it speaks to the superstition around sports, right? So, you know, yeah. not only the players, I guess what you're saying is also the people watching are superstitious. They are. And, and sports make people particularly superstitious because it is there's a lot of uncertainty. So studies seem to show that under... Uh, in unpredictable, chaotic environments, people are much more likely to form superstitions. And this has even been found with pigeons, right? So 
um, the old behaviorist studies, they would um, have a pigeon in a box and they would be given, well, so let's say you got 10 pigeons in, in their own boxes and a random pellet of food comes out at a, just random times. What they found was that pigeon A, who might have been turning her head to the left when the food, before the food pellet came out, starts turning her head to the left again, trying to make the food pellet come out. And pigeon B, who walked around in a circle before the food pellet came out, starts walking around in a circle. So each pigeon would create a superstitious behavior, an idiosyncratic superstitious behavior, depending on what they were doing at the time. And um, <laughs> so superstition is like, seems to happen. We also find this in religion. Um, they have more like superstitious rituals in chaotic environments. Um, but in, in sports, you could, there are certain parts of sports that are more chaotic and unpredictable than others. For example, if you think about baseball, you have pitcher, pitching and hitting. Pitching and batting are very unpredictable. It's very, very unpredictable. And so you end up seeing pitchers and batters with all kinds of rituals. You'll see them like spit and touch their hat and, and do all these things. You don't see outfielders do that. It's not like the, left, the person out in left field, when the ball starts coming toward him, will do like a whole series of rituals because it's, pretty, it's more obvious once the ball is hit what the outcome is going to be. Oh, I can catch that. Oh, I can't catch that. So even like within sports, we see the patterns that get repeated in religion and in other uh, areas of uncertainty, even other animals, uh, when superstition appears. Looking at um, uh, spectator superstitions, uh, they did a survey and they found that the most common spectator superstition is uh, apparel, so what you wear. So I guess like people would wear like a, a hat or a shirt or something, a lucky shirt. Um, but uh, there are also uh, things you say or consumption of food or alcohol. There are good luck charms, behavioral rituals. And um, there, a, a survey of sports fans found that 13% of them did this to assist their favorite teams. But some sports don't even involve teams. Right. Some sports are one-on-one -on -one competitions and some like the shot put are completely solo. Um, and now, while I was writing my book, I, I, I learned from social psychology that, that one way that men and women differ socially is that men tend to have more group loyalty and women tend to be more focused on one-on-one -on -one loyalty. So women are more like um, uh, particular individuals, right? And men will be loyal to, more loyal to a group. Um, and I'm not saying why that is. I'm just saying that that is. <laughs> Um, I don't want anyone to get angry. I'm not saying it's learned or genetic or whatever. It just, it just happens to be a, um, a trend. Um, and I thought to myself, oh, I bet this would be reflected in sports watching preferences. And uh, when I wrote the book, I actually hadn't found the study, but a student found it for me later. And they found that, yeah, actually, somebody did this study and women compared to men prefer one-on-one -on -one sports. And men prefer big team sports, which reflects the way they uh, socialize and have group loyalty. I didn't know this until you said it, that uh, superstitious behavior is in more common in high in area, um, situations with high stakes uncertainty because I see it in exams too, right? With students, they bring like good luck pencils and those good luck trolls and stuff. Really? And I've I, never I know, saw, seen that. Oh, yeah. All the time I see students that they have to have specific um, things that are on their desk while they're writing exams. Wow. Yeah. You're really observant. and No wonder you've won so many teaching awards. <laughs> That's the only reason. I was just looking for a reason to put that in. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the plug. <laughs> uh, it's because you wrote me all the letters. <laughs> anyway, back to sports. So um, you said that some people like sports for some of the same reasons. I think you wrote this in your book, for the same reasons we like art. Right. And 
that it's, that's interesting to me because some sports actually seem like art, like synchronized swimming and figure skating. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, there are a bunch of sports that have explicit aesthetic criteria. So cheerleading and ballroom dancing, gymnastics. And uh, these are these are the kind of things that are on the border of art and sport, and you'll sometimes hear snotty people saying, "Oh, that's not a sport, right?" Um, that's f- funny that you said that because I was a high school cheerleader, and I had a T-shirt that literally said, "Cheerleading, it is a sport." Right, and you probably endured Snickers. Of course. Right. We also wore like crazy weird underwear called Gachi, so that's probably also part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so for sports like for sports where there's an explicit aesthetic criteria, where basically the best people are the ones who look the best, um, they notice they often have a panel of judges, right, mm. to determine the quality. So in a foot race, for example, whoever crosses the finish line first wins, and they might have to look at the video really closely. But basically, it's a physical measurement problem. Okay, long jump or or even in hockey, it's like whoever has the most points wins. Um, but for these artistic sports, you need a panel, and I think this you know this is based on the idea that artistic merit and aesthetics is kind of a it's a somewhat subjective, it's a more subjective thing, and that you'll get a more better reliable measure by sampling multiple people. So you end up with a bunch of judges, and you average their scores to get the final score. But you know it's interesting because there's sometimes when you hear the commentators the um, they'll talk about like a beautiful play like in basketball like oh wasn't that a beautiful play like yeah yeah the, they do you know, and again so, so even in like basketball where aesthetics isn't used to determine who wins people also have um, an aesthetic experience when they're watching like those sports too right they might describe them as like oh that was a beautiful play or something like that and there's a there's an interesting article by Malcolm Gladwell about. Uh, what's in basketball, what's called the full court press. So in basketball, when somebody scores a basket, usually the team that scored the basket goes back to a defensive position. And then the ball, I really don't know the rules of basketball, but anyway, then the ball is given to the team that didn't get the point, and then they come at you, right? So the full court, that's how it's usually done. The full court press is the team that just scored the point doesn't go back to a defensive position. They hound they hound the the people who are getting the ball, and it's not against the rules, but people just it's just not done, right? So even though you might win using the full court press, people might think that it's kind of a cheaty win because that's not how it's played, right? So there's these sort of like subtle cultural uh, they're not quite rules of the game that um, oh. I think people have an aesthetic uh, reaction to. That's <laughs> hilarious. I did not know that, but clearly it speaks to the fact that sports gets people excited. It does. Yeah, it gets people very excited. And uh, excitement's not the only emotion they get. People get lots of emotions. So um, when you ask people, these are science studies, of course, when you ask people why they watch sports, some of them say they use it explicitly to modulate their mood. So they might do it to counter boredom or anxiety. Um, you know, if they find it compelling, it's a nice distraction, you know, from whatever. What, another thing that is interesting about sports, and obviously this is with team sports in particular, people get very emotional and tied to specific players. Like people will report having their favorite players on a specific team and wear the jerseys, for example, of their favored player. Um, can you speak to that? What's, yeah, what's sure. happening so there? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think this is related to celebrity and hero worship in general. Um, and humans are kind of unique in the animal kingdom in that we often, not always, but we often look up to our leaders. 
people will admire their leader. And this is just not the case in like chimps, for example, who basically they rule by mostly um, uh, fear. So they fear their leader, okay? Um, so if a person has great prowess, like an athlete, they might get, they might, your mind might slot them as a leader and you might admire them because you think that, oh, this is a really competent person and that's a leader in my, you know, remember, most, a lot of your brain doesn't realize that you're watching TV, right? So it's like, oh, this is somebody in my community, subconsciously, this is someone in my community that I, uh, you know, who's really good and I admire them. So even though we've never met them. Right. So, you know, the primitive part of our mind might think that the athlete is part of our tribe, someone with high status. So we, you know, we have these ancient protocols, like a group behavior protocol will kick in and we engage in hero worship. And when we watch some sports teams compete and we root for our home team, our minds kind of think that we're watching some important event related to our in-group. Like the, as though the outcome is going to matter and, and make our in-group better off. So it really matters to people psychologically, even though when their team wins, it doesn't translate into any food or money. Unless you've bet money on the game. <laughs> right. <laughs> this episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by Occam's Razors, giving your scientific theories smooth, close shaves since the 1300s. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.